Hello, I'm Andrew Suskind, and I'm a psychotherapist based in Los Angeles, specializing in trauma and addiction. Welcome to our podcast, which is called It's Not About the Sex, also the name of my recent book. Here we focus on all topics related to compulsive sexual behavior, often referred to as sex addiction. In particular, we explore ways to build long-term sustainable recovery. Our intention is to offer fresh viewpoints brand new perspectives, and practical tools toward living a deeply connected life. Let's get started. Today, we've got a great podcast for you. We're going to be talking about emotional sobriety. And emotional sobriety is actually something I focused on in the first chapter of my recent book. And today, I'm here with my colleague and my friend, Sue Merlino, I'm pleased to be discussing this with her. Hey, Andrew, great to be here. Hey, Sue, great to see you too, as always. It's great. Your book is coming out soon, and um, people can get that already on Amazon.com, right? Absolutely. It's ready to go. Cool. And they can read little excerpts on there as well? Yeah, they can read some excerpts. They can read some testimonials. They can send me an email. I'm completely open to any contact with, with any of our listeners. Oh, that's fantastic. Good to know. And you're on Twitter and LinkedIn and Facebook and all those social media platforms. All of the above. All right. We'll have to check all those out. Great. Tell me, what exactly is sexual sobriety? And sexual sobriety is really something that is defined by the individual, usually in conjunction with their sponsor and others who have define for themselves what it means to be sexually sober. So it's very different from alcohol or drugs where you count your time, your sobriety from the time of your last drink. With sexual addiction recovery, it's it's more about defining what are those bottom line behaviors that you don't want to be engaging in and how do you start counting time away from those specific dangerous high risk behaviors. So how would you describe emotional sobriety? Emotional sobriety is a term that was established in the last few decades, really, by a a bunch of people who felt that it was important not only to look at stopping behaviors, but more about changing your lifestyle and finding ways of living life in a way that really is more buoyant, more resourceful, more resilient, etc., And so it's really about physical, emotional, mental, spiritual sobriety. So it's really about a lot of different ways of feeling more comfortable in one's skin, feeling more able to have successful relationships, and most of all, a a better relationship with oneself. So you use the word changing your lifestyle, and you hear that a lot when people want to take on better eating habits and and it's not an easy thing to do it doesn't seem like that that happens overnight so it's a lot of I would say work doing the work around it and making it yours you own it you have to change so many different beliefs and all that around it absolutely I think that's a really great way of putting it that what in order to change our lifestyle it has to be a brand new practice and really a 24-7 kind of awareness about what it means to be more more regulated, and I'll talk about that in a moment, 
with all behaviors, thoughts, feelings, etc. So let me just give you an example of the opposite because I think it's important to, to take note of why emotional sobriety is so important to focus on. So some of you may have heard of the expression dry drunk. Do you know what that is, Sue? What a dry drunk really is? No, not really. Yeah, some people know, some people don't know. But a dry drunk is when someone stops drinking, but they haven't changed any of the underlying behaviors or attitudes. So in other words, it may look like they're not an alcoholic anymore because they're not actually drinking. But underneath of it, they tend to be rageful. They might be quite depressed, disconnected from others, etc. So there's still misery underneath of someone who's a dry drunk. The same thing goes with any behavior that's addictive or compulsive. So if somebody gives up their dangerous sexual behaviors, but they haven't done the deeper work on themselves, we could call them a dry sex addict in a way, right? Almost like residual feelings and, and things that they're still connected to, that they're still trying to find some sort of pleasure in. Because it's a habit, right? You know, you see that with all kind of addicts um, and people in bad relationships. They keep doing it over and over and over, and don't really know why. Right. Let me just say something about that because that's such an interesting point. On the surface, it may look like somebody is trying to feel better, right, by having another relationship, by having another kind of sexual beha- behavior or experience, by drinking or 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 overeating or whatever that might be but underneath of it what generally got them into those patterns was that there was some kind of suffering some kind of brokenheartedness underneath it all and if the brokenheartedness isn't addressed it just perpetuates the problem and it just keeps on going and going and going so you use the word regulation i want to go back to that um I'm not sure I really understand it clearly. Can you say a little bit more about what the word regulation means? Absolutely. Uh, Regulation really relates to the nervous system. So if we think of ourselves as either being regulated or dysregulated at any given moment, regulated refers to when we're feeling more resilient, buoyant, resourceful, where we're experiencing the fullness of our life, and we're feeling really positive generally about what's going on inside of us and around us, right? Dysregulation is everything from feeling panic to rage to disconnection to dissociation to frozenness, anything that is less than buoyant and resourceful, etc. So when we're talking about regulation, we're talking about regulation of emotion, regulation of mood, regulation of behavior, and regulation of activity level, just to name a few. And in the 12-step world, they talk a lot about living in moderation. So regulation also implies this idea of living in moderation, not in extremes. So people aren't really coming to that on their own, though, are they? Do they really understand what regulation and deregulation is, or is that something that's brought to their attention later on? I mean, you know, just walking around like, oh, I'm deregulation right now. Like, I am so off the wall. Right. I am just so dysregulated. <laughs> I don't know what to do with it. Exactly. I I think that regulation as a term is 
is starting to be used more and more. It comes more from the therapeutic community, from therapists and from different types of healers talking about regulation and dysregulation. But it's being talked about more in the 12-step rooms. People are really understanding more that this is a brain-body issue, right? Mm -hmm. This is mind, body, spirit, and soul. And so regulation is all part of that. Um, and it's becoming more a part of the language and hopefully helps people understand and have an awareness of, am I feeling more like myself or am I feeling off, mm -hmm. basically? So Andrew, what are some clues that someone isn't emotionally sober? Right. It's, it's pretty clear when somebody isn't emotionally sober because what you're going to see is someone who just isn't comfortable with who they are. And it comes out in lots of different ways. But some of the things that my clients often tell me is, no matter what I do, I, I just can't relax, right? A difficulty just breathing into and feeling more grounded with, with who they are. Or I can't shut my mind off. I'm constantly worrying and worried about this, that, and the other thing. Often with sex addiction, there's obsessive thinking. So when the, the thoughts just won't slow down and something continually latches on to a problem or to a memory or to anything that is worrisome for someone, that's another example of emotional sobriety not quite being there yet. So the flip side, just to clarify, is that someone who can relax, someone who isn't constantly worrying, and someone who isn't obsessing all the time generally is a sign that they're moving in the direction of emotional sobriety. So when you have clients come to you, they're in, are they usually in this kind of spectrum of just, I just picture someone antsy and just kind of nervous and a little neurotic and just, is that usually at the point where they just seek help is that that's something that you see. So are you talking about my clients or are you talking about us? <laughs> <laughs> because well, are we self-diagnosing here? <laughs> right. Well, in essence, aren't we all like that? Well, some that's of what the I'm time? thinking. Like I see this like on the 405. I'm like, all the well, you, we should just have a little toll booth and just like pull every third car out and absolutely say, okay, we need some get you some tools to get in place there. Right. So, um, so emotional sobriety isn't just for addicts, right? It's not for people right. who are drawn to addictive compulsive behaviors. It's really for 100% of the population because it's, it's more about an awareness and a mindfulness of how do we feel kind of at our peak performance, so to speak. And so I think that it's a great question, but I, I think the, the real distinction is that, of course, every client who comes in to see me has some kind of dysregulation going on. Right. Our work together is to help them know more about when they're dysregulated and how to become more regulated more efficiently. So do you see like a trend right now with more self-awareness of people coming to you earlier in the, in the realm of going down the wrong path? I think the, the issue is that some people end up unraveling more 
and having more consequences. And that's what we would call hitting bottom in a, in a very painful and, and destructive way. And some people have higher bottoms in the sense that they catch things sooner and they don't unravel quite as far. Mm-hmm. But I think what you're also saying is that we live in a very complex world and I'm talking about the external world, but our internal worlds are also very complex. And so what we're seeing or what I'm seeing certainly with my clients is that it's not just one thing that they're coming in with. It's a a history of a lot of different things that have accumulated for many years, usually multiple traumas of different types Mm -hmm. and multiple experiences and relationships that have been heartbreaking. And so our work is to really mend the broken heart. So back to um, how to how to actually have some tools in place and, and how do you have some suggestions that you give your clients to help build a better emotional sobriety? Absolutely. And this isn't exhaustive, but a few things that I came up with is what I call the three R's. It's just an easy way of remembering. So the first R is relaxation. I believe that relaxation is an art. And oftentimes it's not recognized as a practice or as something that we need to to thrive when in actuality it's foundational to everything else that we do in our life to really find ways of calming the nervous system and and letting the heart and our breath and everything relax and Mm -hmm. find ways of, of evening out. So whether it be through meditation or through some of the wonderful apps out there or simply learning belly breathing and practicing that can be very effective. The second R is regulation. I think (laughs) we've talked about that at length already, but we're really talking about working with our emotions, moods, behaviors, activity levels, so that we can find moderation, so that we can observe ourselves and find ways of being more attentive to things that sometimes become extreme or out of control in some way. And how do we find ways of of really observing ourselves and, and being more cognizant of that in in program and some other places they call it respond or responding rather than reacting so how can we that's huge i mean that's something to be so aware of in in our culture that we live in now um i think we live in a, a responding culture and everyone's looking for everybody else's response but different things trigger different people different ways and, for sure. Yeah. And someone could say one word a way that triggers something you might not even be aware of. But it's like having that self-awareness again and is very important. Yeah. And I'll just add one thing to that, that, that the trigger that causes the reaction is, is really something that is historic and based on old roots. So if we can have the reaction, which is natural... And then again, find our way back to a more regulated space more quickly, then that's really the work. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't have to be all about reactivity. And then the final R out of the three R's is resiliency. And I love the word resiliency because it really speaks to how to notice what the nervous system has to teach us. And one of my teachers says, restoring the wisdom of the nervous system. 
And so that resilient space or that regulated space inside of us is really a sanctuary that we can learn and practice and get to know better and better. Wow. So there is a lot of work. Absolutely. It's a lifestyle change. It's a, it's a practice. It's incorporating all of these ideas into your daily living. So all of this reflects back onto oneself, but I can imagine that that has so many more benefits with connecting with others as well. Like you really, they say you can't love another until you learn how to love yourself. And that I'm, I'm sure that that happens with connections until you can really connect with yourself and be aware that that would speak volumes to being able to connect with other people. Absolutely. And and what's so important about what you just said is we're really talking about heart opening, right? When we're dysregulated, our heart is closed or at the very least it's, it just has a little bit of a crack open and regulation and emotional sobriety is really about heart opening so that others can reach us and we can reach out to others. So there's that open channel between the two of us. There's been a lot of study and a lot of talk recently about secure attachment versus insecure attachment. And I'm not going to go into the whole (laughs) attachment theory right now, but secure attachment implies that we trust, that we respect, that we love in a way that others can have our back and that we can have others backs. And that's very sophisticated relational stuff, right? That's really what gives us that ability to truly have people in our corner and for us to be in other people's corner, emotionally reliable people that we really know we can count on. So I like like when you say it's biologically wired, because you do sometimes meet people who are just like that naturally. You just get an instant connection with them. And whether or not they're aware or have gone through any of this, you know, maybe they're just born with it. So it's just kind of really interesting to, to see that, yeah, we are biologically wired for connection, but somewhere along that line something could have gotten turned off or just whatever experience or you know we go back to childhood traumas and people might not even know what trauma or understand what trauma is or was right happened but it shut off that connection for whatever reason right um so it's just it's just fabulous because i've met some people who you just had you just you see them as someone who understands and for us who don't have that naturally to do the work, to take these steps, the relaxation and um, regulation and resiliency that you mentioned um, to do the work and make those connections leads you down a happier path, you know? So it's fabulous. Yeah. And what I want to also acknowledge since I'm sitting here with you is we've known each other almost 35 years (laughs) and I'm sitting across from someone who I know is emotionally reliable and who I get to have mutual re- regulation with. Right. So even yeah. as we're having this podcast today, we get to experience that unspoken language. That's just there. That, yeah. Yes. And, and, and that's off, often when we feel that deeply, as I do with you, my anxiety level drops. Sure. Yeah. My sense of open heartedness opens up. Right. And 
the brokenheartedness of the past gets diminished. Yeah, that's fantastic. And we met back when we were in our 20s, before that frontal lobe is probably even developed. <laughs> um, do you think that there's an age or longevity that's related to those connections? Or can you meet somebody now and still without the length of time? Because I know sobriety is connected with time, like you mentioned right at the beginning. But Well, I think you kind of implied this before. Because we're biologically wired for connection, that's part of us from the get-go, literally from the womb to whatever age you happen to be. Mm -hmm. So if somebody gets sober, let's say they get sexually sober at age 40, that's a wonderful window to start the process of what it takes to build meaningful connections with those who they're meeting uh, in in program or, or in therapy or possibly revitalizing relationships from the past that they had neglected. So it doesn't matter whether you're four years old, 40 years old, or 104 years old. It's all possible. So it's never too late. It's never, ever too late. Thank you so much for joining us today. It was really fun talking with Zoo about emotional sobriety and all of its implications to those in recovery from sex addiction and actually for all of us. Just a reminder that my new book, It's Not About the Sex, is available now on Amazon. So feel free to go there and feel free to contact me in any way at andrew at westsidetherapist.com. And I look forward to speaking with you once again on future podcasts.